Support for this podcast comes from you. And Biogen, committed to transforming the treatment of neurological disease. Biogen is working to develop life-changing therapies for people with multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, ALS, and spinal muscular atrophy. Biogen.com science. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There are lots of things that the government does, like filling in potholes or fighting fires that don't make any money, but that's okay. They're meant to be public services. And there are lots of things that businesses do, like creating slightly slicker smartphones or devising temporary tattoos. They don't really advance society much, but their goal is to make money, and they do. But between government and private industry, there's something called social innovation, and it's been on fire in recent years. Social innovation has the potential to generate some money, but its goal is to advance society with an entrepreneurial approach. Think about microloans or fair trade coffee or carbon trading. Those are all social innovations. President Obama was interested in using social innovation, and President Trump maybe too. Sonal Shah worked with the Obama administration, and she says that one of Trump's early hires, Dina Powell, understands social innovation and knows that public-private alliances can impact everything from education to health care. Sonal Shah is the executive director of Georgetown's Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation, and she argues that some of the divides between how the private market works and how the public sector works can be bridged. If you're looking for a new idea, so let's say, for example, a new way of transportation, then you're looking to bust the mold of the current taxi service. You look at Uber or you look at Lyft or other models. When we think about the social sector, the way we count social services is like, how many people did we serve? We don't actually ask the question, did anything get solved? (laughs) Are people healthier? Are students reading at third grade levels? We don't really ask that question. We just the way current sector works, whether it's philanthropy or the government, we pay for a number of services rendered. Hmm. When you say, like, how many people got served, I think of that as, like, okay, let's say you're running a food pantry and you think, how many people are able to go through the food pantry? Like, how much food do we have in order to serve 500 people or 700 people or whatever it is? But maybe you're not thinking, and tell me if this is kind of what you're getting at, you're not thinking about, well, how do we get to a point where people don't need to come to the food pantry? You know, is there a better way to solve the underlying root problem, which is not how many cans of tomato sauce you have in the pantry? And Kara, that's exactly that's exactly the point uh, that you just made, which is we do need the food pantries because there are going to be people that need access to food and that need access to have nutrition. But if more people are getting access to the food pantry, we should be thinking about what the problem is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is is the is the solution more food pantries with more food, or are we sh- should we be thinking about what's causing hunger? So, do you remember what one of the first actual real-life examples of thinking about, for you, thinking about social innovation and how you invest um, to change the social situation for people. Like, Do you remember what one of those first situations was that kind of caught your eye? Uh, for me, it was actually one that we practiced ourselves. So my siblings and I started a nonprofit about 15 years ago. It was like a Peace Corps for Indians. And we're working in this village in India and they need access to water. And we could keep delivering water, but we didn't actually have a way for them to pay for clean water. And yet when we looked at the data and we saw what they were buying, they were buying pouches of water. And they're paying more money for those pouches of water than they were for the municipal water that was coming in. And we're like, well, what do you do differently 
that clearly people are willing to pay for clean water and at some cost that they can afford, but they're not getting access to it. So how do we fix that market disruption that's taking place there? And my brother actually started a company that basically provided clean water through entrepreneurs in villages. So he created a reverse osmosis system that would take the municipal water. They worked out a deal with the municipal authorities to make sure that the water came consistently. And once or twice a day, people could come and get clean water. And people would pay about 20 cents on the dollar to get access to a bucket of clean water. Hmm. And the line was pretty long. (laughs) And what, what we learned from that was not that people weren't willing to pay. They were willing to pay for a good service. Do you feel like that lets the government off the hook at all? They're like, yeah, we can deliver dirty, inconsistent water, and some really smart people will figure out uh, how to make that work for the people in the community. That's a great question. I think the incentive for the government was not to provide dirty water. Another place where philanthropy can play a role is focusing government on those things to provide cleaner water on a regular basis. While this market mechanism is one way of thinking about how to solve a specific problem, that shouldn't take the government off the hook for doing its job of at least providing consistently clean water. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Sonal Shah. She's an economist and executive director of Georgetown's Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation. So let's talk about another um, situation in which, you know, this idea of social innovation can work in practice. One of the innovations that you've talked about is a way that the New Zealand government is incentivizing companies that build and operate prisons to make sure that prisoners stay out of prison, which is actually completely counterintuitive to me. How does it work? So the New Zealand government, through their finance ministry, runs a program called public-private partnerships. And if you think about it in the United States and around the world, the way public-private partnerships work are things like toll roads, building and operating prisons. But no one incentivizes people to improve the roads or to keep prisons different, right? So the government basically said, what if we change the incentive structure for the people who build and operate prisons from just building and operating them to saying, we'll pay you more if you reduce the number of people that come back to prison? Now, this company that is implementing this basically said, okay, then how do we design a prison? How do we redesign a prison that keeps people out, not built to keep people in. That was my first question. How can architecture change whether people end up coming back to prison after, you know, their first offense or their second offense or whatever? And that's exactly what they changed is the architecture. And they brought in architectural uh, designers and said, how do we do that? So by the time they're in that last stage of being in prison, they're almost living independently in houses Hmm. and figuring out how to live and how to uh, operate in a world. The second thing they had to do was train their wardens differently. So how, as a warden, do you now work on helping rehabilitate prisoners and not keep them in? And then the third thing they had to do was keep track of the data. What What exactly are people coming in for so when they're giving them programming. It's for programming for the issues that they came in for, mm-hmm. not just generic rehabilitation programming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that just kind of changes the incentive structure. And the company that's implementing this says, what I need to do is just figure out what my risk metrics are. And what do you mean by risk metrics? So how do I, their normal risk metric is, am I operating the prison? Is the infrastructure staying clean? Mm-hmm. But now I have to think about, Am I running a program that's helping rehabilitate? And if it's not, what do I need to do? 
If you were um, in charge of things, are there areas, we talked about prisons, but you know whether it's healthcare or housing or education, are there a few specific things you would point to and say, man, if I could just address this through <laughs> social innovation, I would love to. I think there's a re- there's real potential here. Um, I I definitely think in education, especially in early childhood education, there is opportunity. The second is in healthcare. We can pay for prevention, and we just have to rethink our incentives for whether you pay for treatments or you actually pay for prevention. And how do you incent both the people and the providers to think about prevention more effectively? And the third place, I don't think we talk about it a lot, but is really in child welfare. People, especially people that go through the system, if you're a foster child, how do we help a foster child all the way through the system that they have a better outcome in life and not um, get stuck in a system that sometimes you get lost in? And in those three areas, I think we can actually have a tremendous impact on people's lives. You know, you uh, mentioned uh, healthcare. Healthcare is such a big part of our economy. It is just so massive, and it's getting only more massive all the time. Explain how you think the idea of creating financial incentives in healthcare could change people's behavior, could change how much we pay for healthcare. Explain how, you know, sketch that out a little bit. On service delivery, just thinking about how do we keep people healthier so they can do things like uh, before they get in, before they get diabetes, taking care of themselves, either whether it's walking, whether it's uh, eating properly, whether it is um, you know taking uh, taking the medicines that they needed to take, but recognizing that there are ways to avoid big issues, cancer, cancer screenings, making sure people get their cancer screenings early, so we're not catching it at the third and fourth stage, but we can catch it at the first and second stages. But really paying attention to prevention as opposed to just uh, treatment. There's incentives that can be taken through that process, and there are companies. So there are organizations, like for example, Nurse Family Partnerships, uh, which is all over the country now, works with low-income families and mothers, especially when they're pregnant, by sending in nurses, helping them uh, take care of their children, uh, teaching them how to go through the pregnancy, take care of their children when they're born. And what they have been able to do is reduce unhealthy babies being born, and they've been able to increase the healthiness of mothers during pregnancy. And that has been a huge cost on the system that reduces costs over time. And and, uh, you also mentioned education. Can you give me an example of success in social innovation in the education sector, a a time where it actually changed outcomes? So there's a great organization in India called Educate Girls, and they actually did a um, pay-for-success bond, uh, results-based financing, that basically what they were trying to do is to make sure parents had the incentive to send their daughters to school. And they have created a program that provides incentives to parents to send their daughters to school. And they're seeing now the retention rates of girls in school increase Hmm. by a fairly significant number. And what's happening is they looked at this both from a grant-making perspective, but they created an incentive for results. So the organization got paid for achieving results, not just for the number of girls that attended school, but the number of girls that are staying in school Hmm. longer. Hmm which is a different way of approaching the problem. And that's a pretty clear innovation of saying, like, we need to solve one problem, which is girls staying in school, and they're finding ways to do that. Right. 
Sonal Shah is executive director of Georgetown's Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation. Sonal, thank you so much. Kara, thank you so much. We've got info on the Nurse Family Partnership that is using public and private funds to help more than 3,000 first-time mothers in South Carolina. That's at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio.